0: Hello and welcome to the Feral Logic Podcast. My name is Vortex, And I'm Vega.
1: And I'm Rick. I'm uh, joining from uh, the Netherlands. I'm an embedded engineer from the Netherlands, mostly working on, on microcontroller projects uh, for, a, for a living and working with all, all sorts of embedded stuff uh, from FPGAs to audio design to working with weird old computers and tech uh, as a hobby.
2: And always obsessed when you see a tube, right?
1: Yes, always. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, I suppose we'll just get started then uh, you do a lot of embedded stuff, but what is it you mainly work on? Like, is it FPGAs? Is it microcontrollers? What do you normally work with? Uh,
1: uh, for, for my day-to-day job, it's mostly microcontrollers uh, also some embedded Linux stuff. So uh, smaller ARM processors capable of running a full operating system like Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of it is software development for all kinds of mostly ARM Cortex M. So microcontroller class uh, devices. Uh, for my work, it's mostly software engineering, uh, also some design work, some hardware engineering, wherever needed. Uh, I, um, I can do the whole uh, range of things, so that's uh, pretty easy in that kind. If there's uh, something with a hardware wrong, I can also uh, fix it as well.
2: So on the embedded end then, so working with mostly microcontrollers, but also working with the um, ARM systems there, do you have an issue switching between the two when you go between the world of no OS to having an OS?
1: uh not that much because uh, i mean you know you know you're working with a completely different class it's going from my controller to a computer almost to a full blown computer mm-hmm. um, so working on that having a linux environment for example uh, it just feels almost the same as working with a raspberry pi or working with a normal desktop computer so, that's, it's, it's very easy to switch. And uh, also on the embedded side, on the microcontroller side, you also have generally some form of small operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a different class of device. And just because it is so different, it's not that difficult for me to switch. Uh, it also helps that most of the time a project takes, I mean, it's a full, pro- full development of a project. So, it takes three to three months to maybe a year so if you're working oh, right. for three right. or six months on a project and then you switch to a different one the, the day of switching is yeah very small compared to the whole project overall in terms of length
2: that makes sense i didn't realize that i don't i sort of had it in my head that when you're doing all the stuff you're working on multiple projects at once but i suppose if you're just doing one at a time it's probably not that bad
1: yeah that's that's that's, that really helps uh if you're working on a project for a longer time it's it's fine uh it it does it is the case that uh sometimes projects come back for example you worked on a project and you have a working prototype so to speak and then the the customer we're working for is moving through production Uh, Mm -hmm. you have things like testing seeing if it's safe seeing if it's certified and such which takes a while, so you work on different projects. But the moment that the whole certification is done, uh, production is being set up and such, uh, projects tend to come back. So in that case, I do have some weeks that I work on four or five projects in a week, which that then switching gets a little bit uh, awkward at times.
2: On the note of testing, I'm curious. So because the Netherlands is a relatively small area and you're selling, I assume, to a global, working on products that are going to end up in a global market, um, how does the testing stuff work out if you're going to be working on that kind of scale?
1: Uh, Yeah, it depends. Uh, Where I work is really an engineering company. So we, we develop a product. We help our customers developing a product. So for example, if a customer doesn't know how to work with electronics or just doesn't have the, the, the manpower, the capability for a project. That's where a uh, company where I work steps in. Uh, so sometimes a product is really aimed at a single market so it will be sold in one or two countries, which makes testing easier. Uh, sometimes a product is sold worldwide, which uh, especially if you have anything uh, radio frequency in it, so Wi-Fi, Bluetooth for example, uh, testing is, is quite a long tr- uh, quite a long process. Um, within the EU, because you have the, the whole of Europe, it's all uh, standardized. Uh, but if you're selling worldwide, it's we just call to a testing house that know how to deal with it. Uh, we explain the products. We say where it should be sold, what certifications are needed, and let them just figure it out. Because those are very long, uh, <laughs> very long trajects. Uh, and yeah, best to leave that to the people that uh, are very well versed on that.
2: So in other words, while well, the US government is shut down, that's the perfect time to push product
1: through. Oh yes, perfect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, luckily for us, that the, the shutdowns is it was the longest one, I think, ever. yes. Yeah. it's yeah. it's still measured in weeks. So uh just purely the testing and getting all the certifications, it takes months. So uh yeah. a few weeks extra on that is I think from what all can go wrong when a government shuts down, it's not the biggest problem you can have. Uh, honestly, no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just had to poke some fr- poke some fun there. Um, yeah. So, so with with what you work on, are you able to discuss at all like what it actually is?
1: It uh, depends. I mean, projects that are finished and are being sold, it's it's, it's possible to discuss. Uh, Projects are still being worked on, of course. Is still being worked on. Is not released to general public. So that makes it a bit. Uh, you can discuss it, but use a bit of vague terms. Depends on the project. Depends on the customer. Uh, of course. But, uh, yeah, generally products like uh, because the internet of things is of course uh, still very big and very happening. Uh, so you have a lot of uh, products that just yeah needs suddenly needs to have Wi-Fi inside for some reason mm-hmm. um so that those are customer projects and when they're released when they're sold it's no problem to talk about it. Uh, i think on the website from where i work we also have a few of them listed as well so
2: okay well what are the th- what are some of your favorite projects you've worked on then
1: uh one one nice project i worked on it was um i th- maybe you know this it's a a, a product for a uh, hotel door systems so if you go to a hotel and uh, a in somewhat newer hotel you get an electric key, like a small card or whatever, you hold mm-hmm. in front of the door, and the door unlocks. Um, and it was a customer that already had an existing system like that. So in a hotel, you would have one main controller per hallway or per X number of hotel doors. And um, hold the key you get in front of the door. It signals the main controller. Uh, is it allowed to unlock the door, etc., unlock it or not? Um, Also with a remote management system. So if, yeah, I mean, uh, it's an hotel, people lose keys. You don't want someone who finds a key to randomly enter a room. So you need to remotely block off keys and such. And it was a product that already existed, but I wanted a newer version because um, uh, the older version was getting a bit slow. Some network technologies like 2G are yeah, slowly moving out or in some countries are already uh, gone.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and because it's, uh, yeah, it, it contains uh, security aspects, you don't want random people to unlock the doors. It's connected to the internet. So if someone finds out how to hack that system, open all hotel doors everywhere in one go it's of course, horrible. Uh, so that uh, was a project running Linux, but also had a lot of security aspects as well. So it was very interesting uh, to work on hmm
2: The security aspect can be such an interesting time, too. I, I've i done some stuff with that because I have uh, RFID tags in each hand as well as uh, Proxmark for working on things like that with right, RFID. Man. And I've done my fair share of trying to get through RFID <laughs> systems. And it's it's an interesting time. So I can only imagine how much... Uh, fun that is to secure
1: oh yeah i mean the security aspect itself is something i find quite interesting how to make how to think because to to get it secure you have to think uh, as the person hacking a system uh, what would you do to uh, if you know the whole system what would you do to attack the system etc etc so that is i I find it very interesting to to think about it like that and uh, uh, try getting it secure but Uh, It it is a very complex uh, field, and forgetting one thing uh, can be very problematic. So you have to uh, verify every single security step 10 times. Uh, In some cases, uh, uh, hire an external IT company specialized in pen testing as such to really verify that it's secure and it works and uh, you can't get in.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: But uh, it is interesting, but it is also uh, quite difficult, uh, quite time-consuming as well. But yeah. Hmm. That was, I think, one of the more interesting projects uh, to work on uh, compared to uh, some other projects that is just random consumer application, but now with Wi-Fi. Yeah. So
0: let me ask a question with those because uh, it's one thing I've noticed in the more hotels I go to is they, they use the, the proximity cards. Um, was your system one of the ones that you can integrate with the, um, uh, the phones that have NFC technology?
1: Uh, it, it was it was not implemented at the moment, but it was it had the functionality and the hardware to also support Bluetooth uh, Low Energy, so BLE, for okay. phones. So it was all, it was taken in consideration at that moment. Interesting.
2: That's that's actually really interesting because when he when Vortex just said that, I imagined because uh, with my NFC or the RFID tag in my hand is NFC, so I can actually program it or. Program it with my phone or then emulate it with my phone. I assumed that Vortex was meaning actually using your phone as the card, uh, using an FC, not necessarily through Bluetooth Low Energy. I would mm-hmm. think that Bluetooth Low Energy would have some massive security issues, but you got that figured out?
1: Um, Bluetooth Low Energy, um, it, there are some security aspects to that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things as well is Bluetooth Low Energy has range. So if you're That's true. somewhat close, it you, you could unlock it. So, uh, but because that was just uh, the hardware was added in, so it was future proof in that sense, but we haven't really looked into implementing that. So, uh, oh, so I'm, just the chip sure you had that. had it on? <laughs> it was mostly the chip having it on and such. Yeah.
2: Okay. That makes sense. Uh, I suppose then, um, just to move on from that subject, you've mentioned that you do a lot of stuff with like weird technology, um, old <laughs> stuff like tubes. Uh, what, what's the deal with some of that?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I like uh, a weird technology because uh, especially some older weird technology from strange computers and such. Uh, uh, when computers were getting there, getting popular, there were quite a lot of different architectures in kind of different ways of building a computer. A lot of companies with uh, completely different CPUs and companies developing their own uh, CPUs. And from that on, we went to now having Intel and AMD with essentially the same CPU architecture, uh, computers being almost completely standardized in that sense. So I do like weird old computers in, in that way, because it's uh, yeah, interesting to look at, uh, uh, well, sometimes good ideas, but uh, that didn't make it for whatever reason. So in that sense, I got a few old IBM computers, which IBM has made a lot of weird and expensive tech, hmm. and they still do make a lot of weird and expensive tech, but at the moment it's 20 years old, it's affordable and people throw it away, so yeah, means so I can pick it up.
2: <laughs> so you mean like PowerPC stuff or just even weirder than that?
1: I, I got one uh, a Power workstation, uh, I think it's an uh, IBM RS6000, it has a Power3 CPU inside, uh, mm-hmm. which in the time, I think it's early 2000s, it was released. Uh, was a 30000 US dollar workstation. And according to IBM, of course, the the quickest one available. Um, They stopped with that fairly quickly after they stopped making workstations altogether. Um, But uh, that was one I picked up for, I think, uh, a case of beer or something like that. (laughs) Uh, But it runs a a Unix-based operating system. It has a graphical output. It can do full HD outputs even from a very... 20 year old machine so uh, that's, that's
2: impressive
1: it's, it's impressive it's uh, it's it has it's fully loaded with the maximum of, of 2 gigabytes of random access memory which i mean in 2001 2002 was uh, uh, i think unobtainable for a normal computer so it was very powerful for that time um, you can almost said, open a handful of chrome tabs on that you can almost if run can... one electron app yes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, assuming you're going to, I mean, it, it runs a Unix-based operating system. Um, it, there is a GCC compiler available for it. You can download a lot of uh, GNU parts like the GCC compiler and such. So if you are really, really, really want to, you might be able to compile Chrome, but I'm I'm not going to try that. Yeah, that um, does not sound like any fun, honestly. <laughs> no, no. I, the, the IBM has a Quake Two, which I want to get up and running on that, <laughs> um, but it I got it with the wrong hard drive. Uh, it normally has a twenty gigabyte hard drive, but that is broken down. So someone found an even older four gigabyte hard drive. So I have about two hundred megabytes of free space. So I can't really install anything. Hmm. So I, I I got a bigger hard drive, by now to reinstall it, that takes yeah. about a day, I think. Uh, but as it runs Linux, or sorry, as it runs something Unix-like, it's it's not that weird um i also got an as400 machine from ibm which was a more server almost mainframe like system uh i also i think i also got a fairly popular post even uh of getting that up and running Hmm. and that is completely different from anything any other computer i ever used so that was a really alien like um, it, it looks like a normal workstation tower in terms of size and, and noise and such. So it's not, not that bad. Um, but, uh, the operating system it runs, OS 400, it has a built-in database. So instead of a file system, you actually have a full blown database with everything it oh. works on. So that's uh, interesting. Uh, everything is an object. There are no files. So it's complete object oriented operating system in some sort of way. So everything is completely different from a normal Linux or Windows type of machine. So uh, getting that up and running was uh, interesting, at least.
3: Have
2: you managed to do anything like productive or interesting with it?
1: Ah, uh, I got Hello World up and running. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I got a first problem was it has no outputs and has no video outputs or anything. It has a network connection. So uh, after it booted, which takes about thirty minutes. Uh, and some Wireshark magic, I found an IP address, which was static, of course. So I used my laptop as a uh, host to at least be able to connect to it. So getting all that up and running, I was greeted with a lovely Dutch login screen. Because, of course, if you buy a super expensive computer, you install it in non-English. Lovely. <laughs> um, <laughs> luckily, the it was from an IT company, so it was the original on it. The company went bankrupt about five or six years ago from what I could find. And luckily they had the world's most horrible IT administrator because I could log in with admin admin. Oh Uh, my. Yes. So well, at least lucky for me because uh, reinstalling that operating system, I think impossible unless you work for IBM. So I was really happy I could get that all up and running. Um, so it has uh, some programming language supports, um, mostly weird old IBM stuff like COBOL and other very business-oriented languages. There's no C compiler or anything. Uh, you can not download a C compiler. It's, uh, so you, I got some pro- uh, programming code I'm running. I managed to make a program, mostly stolen from the Internet, that uh, could fetch a website. So just get a raw HTML in. So I could visit a retro Hackaday website to get my blog post on there as well. So that was uh, <laughs> very interesting. Um, and after that, uh, because it, it went on Hackaday, I got a, really a ton of emails and, and people uh, with very nice replies and um, people with very good advice. And I actually managed to get a hold of installation disks and such because of that. Uh, There was a lot more community around the very weird old machines than I expected. Very spread out, but at least quite a lot of people who who still have those machines and like working on them. Hmm. Uh, So that was uh, unexpected, but pretty nice. So maybe I'll ever install it, but I honestly doubt so. Um, I also contacted, I found out that in the Netherlands, like 50 kilometers from where I live, someone is trying to get a, a dedicated museum for these machines. So I'm uh, oh. going to visit him sometime soon, and perhaps the machine is going there. Uh, I'll see how that goes. That's, that's pretty, pretty cool.
0: cool. There's actually yeah. one being built in Atlanta, or near Atlanta. Uh, oh, really? It, the vintage computer museum. Um, I'm... <laughs> It's close to me, but I haven't got a chance to get there yet. But it's it's, it's amazing <laughs> to me that, that there's still this this community around this stuff. And you know, I, I know I've I've seen the 400s in still in production for you know.
3: Uh, oh you yeah, know, I've seen
0: yeah. You know, so there's it's still one of those weird skills to have, like you know, Fortran for, for programming <laughs> or COBOL. Well, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, COBOL runs pretty good on them. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is one of those machines. It's- so it's a very IBM machine, uh, you buy it once you, and it keeps running forever. And, uh, the moment your whole IT company after 40 years moved to a different location, you find it somewhere still running in a basement, probably. So uh, it funny is, mention that. <laughs> it is something that really keeps on running. And that's also, I think one of the, the, the reasons why IBM can charge the prices they do yeah, for those I, kinds it, of
0: machines. It's, it's funny you mention that because I, I, I work, um, as a head engineer for a cable TV company. So mm-hmm. when I got into my job, um, I took over an office that had been a head end for about 25 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. And part of my, my goal was to clean up some of the old equipment we had. And I found a, um, it wasn't a 400. It was, um, I'd have to, I'd have to go back and look at it. Cause I still have the server. but <laughs> And it was just, you know, it had, it, you know, the server had still been running and last, the last logs were from like, 1994 and it's just been sitting there for 10 years. No one wanted to touch it because it's like we don't know what it does. <laughs> but it, it oh. worked. I I had to reboot it and everything came up and started doing something, but oh, perfect. Yeah. It, it still works, you know. It's it's still there and you know I could probably plug it back in today <laughs> and still do something with oh, it. Oh, but...
1: that's 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 great. Yeah. You also sometimes you see those blog posts of people that finds a very old like a Commodore 64 still running on still controlling a full-blown massive cnc machine for example and still running happily after 30 odd years so it, yeah. it still happens it's still very interesting to see so and, the
2: exact uh, opposite of modern equipment pretty
0: much yeah
1: <laughs> yeah in a way absolutely. Yeah. Uh, then again i think uh, there's still uh i mean windows uh, uh, 10 is now out for a bit and windows 7 is getting to the end of the support line but there's still Plenty and plenty of machine running Windows XP, Windows ninety eight, not connected to the internet or anything, but just because the hundred thousand dollar or euro equipment only works with that machine on that operating system, don't touch.
2: Particularly in medical and uh, science field, I've seen a lot of ninety eight machines, and it's kind of terrifying that like the cutting edge <laughs> research is still done on ninety eight.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I Well, I mean, the the I think the ninety eight. Generally, just for controlling something, so it's uh, it's just uh, making sure that the whole machine keeps on running, and I guess as long as it's not connected to the internet or anything it's it's fine, I'd say just just don't browse the internet on those.
3: <laughs>
2: I'm not sure anybody actually wants to use that <laughs> anymore anyway so uh, yeah uh, so moving hard. on from that, you, you mentioned that you do a lot of audio stuff with like tubes, DSP, and stuff like that. Uh, what's some of the cool stuff you've done with that?
1: Uh yeah that's true I I do I like building audio stuff uh, mostly uh, uh, speakers amplifiers and such um not very uh, well known in, in synthesizers and such I, I like the sounds I like how they work but uh, not something I've uh, played with yet um one of my last projects also to to learn FPGAs a bit more was uh, building a a configurable audio filter in an FPGA so hmm. I used an FPGA board to sample in audio using an you know, got off-the-shelf analog to digital just for audio converter, uh, sampling data, uh, pass it through some digital uh, uh, processing to, to get all kinds of filters. Uh, Think like a low-pass filter or a high-pass filter, bond, band-pass filter, all such uh, things, uh, and get it out again on a digital uh, to analog converter. Um, Did it actually because, sound decent? Yes, it works amazingly well. I used it for a while. Um, for my record player because I didn't have a a funnel preamp and I did have a preamp that just amplifies but doesn't do the record player filtering and I can just load up all the filtering uh, equations in in the FPGA board and it works perfectly fine with absolutely no latency because yeah, it's an FPGA, everything is in hardware That's
2: incredible, that's actually really, really cool
1: Yeah, Uh, it works remarkably well for a few evenings of work
2: I find it interesting that you're doing stuff with like FPGAs for audio, yet you still have interest in vacuum tubes. Like the, the separation there
3: is just <laughs> yeah, massive. Yeah,
1: it, it, <laughs> yeah again, uh, weird and fun, and they work with very lethal voltages, so that's always interesting of course. Um, they glow, which is always nice.
2: <laughs> the most important part. You gotta make them yes, glow as much as yes. you can.
1: They, they, they glow, and if, uh, if, if for whatever reason, there's a re- you have pro- radiation, the tubes will survive. You, you not, but well, your amplifier will. So that's nice, I guess.
2: <laughs> oh, my. I've, I've done some really interesting stuff with tubes myself where I'm not sure how they still work in the end. Uh, <laughs> uh, name, namely, putting the tubes right next to some really bad EMI sources and just wow. completely flooding them with noise and doing dumb <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, and I've also managed to shock myself on a few tubes, so that's yeah, always... Fun one to walk away from when you know you can't feel your hand for a few minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, tubes have the the, in, the nice advantage of that they're inherently uh, short circuit proof, so you can short circuit a tube and it doesn't care at all, uh, unlike a transistor, which well, explodes generally um You can use tubes to two or three times their rated maximum power for well, not very long, but at least a few hours, and they'll glow very bright reds to indicate they're doing something very wrong. But they'll survive. <laughs> I mean, the the, the point <laughs> that a tube dies because you're overusing it is is when it's so hot that the glass melts. That's when it dies. So, yeah, it's it's a bit more forgiving than uh, transistors. But on the other side, you're working with several hundred volts. So touch something and it'll hurt quite badly or possibly worse. So, yeah. Well, that begs that the
2: question, with. have you made a tube melt yet?
1: Uh, yes, yes, I have. <laughs> uh, I, I, a friend of mine, uh, guitar amplifier uh, and tubes are still quite popular with guitar players for the, for the sound and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, I
2: actually and, have a tube guitar
1: um, Gatorium sitting behind me, so... <laughs> nice. Uh, and and because he wanted a more distorted sound, uh, he just modified it uh, to overload the, the, the big power tubes. And uh, he managed to burn through a set of tubes every 50 hours of playing, <laughs> compared to the normal lifetime, a thousand or a few thousand hours. So wow. he asked me to, yeah, can you make it sound like that? But not destroy the tubes that quickly so i i burned two one or two tubes trying to figure that out and in the end i just put in bigger tubes and overdrive the, <laughs> and added a bit more distortion in the amplification because those tubes can handle that a bit more a bit better mm-hmm. but uh, yeah Absolutely. it's uh, easy to melt some tubes like that
2: <laughs> i have a 12ax7 preamp for overdrive on my main uh, it's an old Musac amp that i converted into a guitar amp and that when i have everything on full blast try to get distorted sound if i put my hand on the metal casing on the music mm. amp it, it'll burn you
1: so oh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> tubes uh run quite hot absolutely yeah
2: oh, oh my I, th- I think it's crazy that we're even still using them at all that we haven't figured out a way to make the transistors sound reasonably close to the point where it's still enjoyable for audio that people still bother with them
1: yeah no, absolutely. I, I think it's also a big nost- if you look at a, a an amplifier a tube amp- transistor amplifier or whatever uh, y- using modern measurement gear you can uh, just replicate the, the specific sound of an amplifier quite well so I mean, I, is... I have
2: a few uh, modeling amps, and they legitimately don't sound the same as the tubes. So I don't know if the modeling just isn't good enough or what it is. But
1: <laughs> you need a a pretty good uh, system processing system to to match them up, and uh, it'll probably still you can still measure some difference. But I think if you have a well enough job, it should sound almost the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but tubes have some advantages. They they look cool, of course. Uh, you can overdrive the mid board. They're a bit more resilient. Uh, so for guitar stuff, it's still popular, but I also mm-hmm. think that the, the, nostal- the nostalgic, or in some cases, the audiophile uh, community perhaps likes them, not just because of sound, but also for uh, the other reasons.
2: Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, just like vinyl, like it's it does sound better if it's a completely clean vinyl and you have a wonderful record player, but in general, it probably doesn't, you're better off with black files, but everybody still likes vinyl. <laughs>
1: Oh yes, absolutely. Um, finalists, yeah, it's it's nice. You have big covers, so that's nice to look at. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, for for most, I think for ninety five or maybe ninety nine percent of the people, uh, just a Spotify stream is sounds the same.
2: Well, I think part I mean, of that's because most people have really bad amps. But
1: yeah, I mean that too. But uh, for most people, music is something you listen to while you're while you're other things. So. Then, yeah. if you're just listening to music like that and not completely focused on the music, then yeah, uh, I don't think the amplifier or your speakers matter that much. Uh, if you really, really like to really listen to music, focus on that, then it's a different story. Um, mm-hmm. But Very if you just have music on in the background or whatever, yeah. <laughs> and there's I also mean, you
0: know I mean, Bluetooth headphones too. You know, it's you can have the best audio file you have, but if <laughs> <so> you're <many> Bluetooth <laughs> headphones, it's um, still going to be compressed
1: yeah yeah absolutely i, I mean the, the newer ones with the, the, the better bluetooth protocols sound pretty good i'd say but uh, generally if you have a bluetooth headphone you're it's probably for people uh traveling on the move or in public transport. and yeah i don't think your headphones matter that much at that moment yep.
2: yeah i i uh have to kind of comment here on the you're talking to you know Two filthy americans that you know we have to have as much bass as possible in our music too that covers up all the other frequencies
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah oh yeah you have you have pretty nice uh you have pretty good headphones for <laughs> or just crank oh. up the equalizer to max and be done with it
2: <laughs> <laughs> i uh yeah. i extra have to joke for that because actually on the computer i'm talking to you on i have two 12 inch subs hooked up and i have a 15 inch sub behind me too so <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: yeah i live in the. Complex, I'll be nice to my neighbors and, and just not do that. I, <laughs> I, I mean, spend a bit.
2: As long as you only turn it up for a few minutes at a time and I can't figure out who's doing it, it's fine.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. It's a very new apartment complex, so it's pretty well isolated. But I mean, it's, <laughs> I have a fairly small hobby room and a small room. Uh, I, I just bought a pretty decent non Bluetooth headset or headphones, sorry. Um, that's per- perfectly fine for me.
3: Mm hmm.
2: Uh, I just have to laugh about that a little bit, because, you know, everybody over here bragging about their base, you know, with the <laughs> riced out cars where we have giant subwoofers in the back and whatnot.
1: Yeah, I don't worry. You have those here as well. perhaps <laughs> maybe a bit less. I I don't know. You have them here as well. You can't just hear the bass coming and after five minutes a car follows as well.
0: <laughs> well I think the craziest part about those things is that you, you have these competitions where you are—they're building cars to sustain. I mean, nearly lethal levels of <laughs> of audio, and it's—you—they you, can easily blow out their windshields and wind and anything. So you see these uh, these bands <laughs> that have—they're literally like. Bolts around the windshield frame to keep the windshields on and the plastic, and
1: yeah, yeah, you have
0: the people put, you know, go inside them and they have their hair blown around. It's, it's
1: insane. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes for pretty good YouTube video. But uh, but, but if you want to get the, the the most sound level absolutely possible, that that also takes some some seriously engineering to to get to insane amount of sound pressures. I mean, it's a bit silly, but it, it takes quite some engineering, and it makes for good YouTube videos. So yeah fine with that
2: i'm pretty sure the vast majority of the engineering we like to do is silly engineering though i
1: mean yeah yeah,
2: absolutely of course even the very first episode of this podcast we're talking about my uh floppy drive music player i mean everybody loves these stupid projects
1: yes yeah absolutely It's, it's also that sometimes you make a project that takes serious engineering it takes serious work you spend quite a lot of time in it and then no one likes it and you make something silly which you stole from from instructables.com or something and (laughs) everything loves it everyone loves it so yeah
2: yeah okay so i gotta ask Uh, on that then what's your favorite silly project you've made
1: um (laughs) that's a good one i think that's just building a a on my desk with just flying wires a massive 15 tube nixie display just to get a unix timestamp clock was (laughs) <laughs> pretty high up there. Wow. <laughs> in terms of stupid engineering and, and just being an absolute nerd about, plans, well, I mean, shocking okay, myself at least 20 times trying to build it.
2: As soon as the time overflows, you're going to have the best display for watching that.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hope we're switched to a 64-bit timestamp by then. I need to add more tubes by then, but that'll be fine. When is that, like 2038? Yeah, yeah, I think it's 2038, but then again, we had the same issue in Windows in in 2000 and that went fine so should be fine
2: <laughs> see i'm not old enough to remember that so
1: <laughs> well i'm barely old enough but I, I know it because i was a huge nerd back then as well so <laughs> <laughs> i remember bits of it but i was still like 10 or something so yeah i still see, remember
0: because you know we oh my god you have to stockpile water you have to stock supplies at the end of the world and <laughs> The next day, it's like, oh, nothing really happened. <laughs> but now, you yeah. know, I, I worked at Best Buy, or, uh, Best Buy at the time, and um, they sold the, uh, the BIOS cards that uh, protected your computer from uh, Windows 2000 or not, oh, uh, wow. sorry, from the, 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 uh, from the Millennium bug. And like the <laughs> next day, we all go in, it's like, you know, if you guys can sell one of these now, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks, but they just sat on the shelf from then on.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh man, I I didn't know that they made or tried to make actual BIOS cards for that. Yeah, that's amazing. was it just
2: to, like force the clock back ten years or like what was the point?
0: I would have to look up the technology. I want to say, <laughs> I mean, this is back, you know, you know, when uh, you know, Intel Pentium days, Windows ninety five. It, <laughs> it, it could very well be a uh like a a BIOS add on card um. Uh, I I I never actually played with them. I'd like to play with one now to see what it is. But
1: yeah. <laughs> that would make for interesting, uh, interesting uh, subject. Yeah, it may, may just well just get be an... wires
2: that do nothing.
1: It could be, but uh, <laughs> maybe there's something in it. So it's, you need to find a card like that on, on eBay or such. I mean, finding a computer from that era is fairly easy. But I'm, I'm I wonder if those cards are still somewhere. So probably. I mean, you can find everything on eBay, I guess.
2: That's crazy. I'd almost be curious what would happen if you could put one in a modern system. Like if you could find a way to hardwire it in, what it would do.
1: Uh, I don't want to know. But knowing how backwards compatible modern CPUs still are, I guess it would still do something, assuming that the card actually does anything. Yeah, I mean, the the very ancient uh, ISA bus standards from the old the first uh, personal computers is still in your CPU. It's, not used anything it's not brought out but it's still used i think some use it for a temperature sensor or something so
3: yeah I, i've the, seen
1: them yeah and all the modern 8 core or 16 or even 32 core cpus just still start in 16 bit mode for the first microsecond so honestly yeah it's still
2: that's stuff is incredibly impressive to me like i have an ibm 3151 here sitting next to me an old uh terminal that just you know green screen text only that i can hook up through linux and use it as a terminal just fine use a model m directly connected to it
1: that's that's great yeah i'm i'm, I'm picking up a, an ibm 5160 tomorrow which i sort of found online for uh not not that much so that'll be interesting but yeah, looking at that it's still a normal computer. It's one of the first n- computers that's still the same as your well your current uh, uh, machine. So. Hmm. You can I, install Linux on it. I
2: I think. Should it be? may not run overly well, but you could.
1: Well, I think it will boot very quickly because there's nothing to boot. <laughs>
2: It'll, It'll boot, cool. you're not going to run electron apps when you're done
1: though. Oh no, it, it doesn't fit in your 600 gigs of RAM.
2: <laughs>
0: okay, so I actually googled this, right? I was I was really curious about these what these boards did. First off, shout out to CNN. Um they have a news article. I, I actually for those who okay. listen the link or, or, or want to go search this, uh search for uh y, Hold on, what did I search for? <laughs> I searched Y2K bug PC card in Google. The first link is a news story posted by CNN October sorry, April 21st, 1999. A- and the cool part is it looks like the CNN website from 1999 it's (laughs) cnn.com but it's literally their old their old thing so um yeah uh, i found it evergreen's 39.95 year 2000 upgrade card available immediately fits in the isa or esi esisa slots evergreen says users need only shut down or disconnect power from the pc open the lid install the card and an open slot, and then reverse these steps. At The next power-up, the BIOS message indicates Y2K compliance. No software installation is required, the company claims. Um, oh, it wow. looks like it's... I'm reading through the story now. Um, okay, the Evergreen card reprograms any PC's BIOS to make it, make the proper translation. It's talking about the translation between 1999 to 2000. Um, it also protects from. It also provides virus protection plus backup restore f- functionality for the pr- programmable CMOS chip um, on which the BIOS resides. So it sounds like it's a it's a BIOS backup and um, replacement sh- card.
1: It, it definitely does something at least. It's, yeah. at least it's more than a few wires. That's I guess good.
2: Well, okay. So if you go down further in the article, it says that. Um, Cards similar to this were available from American Megatrends, which still makes a lot of bioses for modern systems. So if you could find an American Megatrend system and manage to run through enough adapters, I bet there's still code left over from (laughs) that. (laughs) I bet it would still do
1: something. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But
0: but serious discussion, because I'm not as familiar with ISA and PCI as I need to. ISA is almost basically direct processor access, isn't it?
2: Well, so is PCI. Uh, Yeah, ISA, I
1: mean, for a very old CDA, I think ISA is just hooked up almost directly to the memory bus and the data bus of the CPU. So it it is almost a direct uh, uh, link, yeah. Hmm.
2: Yeah, actually with uh, that on security notes, I've seen with modern PCIe, uh, if you use Thunderbolt, which is effectively just bringing out the PCIe bus to an exposed port so you can plug things Mm. into it, uh, because it's such direct low access and there's no way to really cut it off without GIMPing Thunderbolt, uh, it has massive issues for security. Somebody could easily plug something in and get direct CPU access right down to the um, Intel uh, management engine or the AMD's equivalent. It's kind of yeah, that, I
0: didn't realize yeah. it was that unsecure. Now, mind
2: you, <laughs> well, at that point you have physical access anyway. And if somebody right. has physical access, they own your system no matter what.
1: Yeah. I mean, if your system is rooting Windows then you don't read vulnerable to have that issue, but if you have physical access, yeah, yeah, someone is already next to your computer, yeah, good luck. Yeah. Even if you're but, running Linux,
2: I mean, physical access yeah. is bound.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But um, as long as it's just physical access needed, it's, it's fine, I guess. But yeah, Thunderbolt and PCI Express is very, very closely related to your computer system, to your CPU.
2: I find it kind of funny. It's an interesting way around the physical access problem on making sure people can't install bugs and stuff. A lot of those just rely on emulating an HID device and typing in commands as if you were the user. Uh, But if you use a non-standard key map, which actually anything but the US key map is basically safe. So if you're using a Dutch layout or anything like that, you're probably safe too. Uh, A non-standard key map and a lot of those things just don't work.
1: Yeah, that's true, but um, sadly for that, or luckily maybe, I don't know, uh, in the Netherlands we have a layout, but we all decided it's so horrible that we just <laughs> use the US international for that. So, yeah, that doesn't work.
2: I'm one of the few people using the Dvorak layout, but actually that's about to change too. I ordered a uh, QMK keyboard, so as soon as I have that I'm gonna just going to do the uh, remapping and the hardware and then leave it in QWERTY on the system.
1: Oh, nice. I, I, I recently got a very old IBM weird... Chinese keyboard from I think 1980 something which had a serial connector so I just built my own converter using I think the TMK or QMK so that, that works.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of I suppose we should get into that a little bit uh, I think we're going to have another guest on this show later that um, does keyboard stuff probably for an episode or two down the road but I suppose you do some too what is, what is your experience with doing stuff with old keyboards and QMK, TMK and whatnot?
1: Well, uh, I, I do have some experience with that. People have spent a lot of time making QMK and TMK because it works quite quite great. And it has an amazingly amount of features for that. So uh, my experience is uh, download the source, compile it, change the key map a bit to match my preference, throw it in a $2 Chinese Arduino, and done. Perfect. Thanks is to the open anything? source community. <laughs>
2: Is there any spe- anything special in your key map or anything extra that because you're running QMK or TMK uh, TMK is possible that wouldn't be otherwise?
1: Uh, TMK is a bit more limited in that sense. QMK has a bit more features, but TMK has uh, more examples for converters. So getting a strange old keyboard with a serial port mm-hmm. and hooked up to anything. So uh, it doesn't have that much weird features. I got a, a, a copy and paste mapped to a single key and such. That's... Uh, apart from that, not that much strange. Uh, the keyboard I have, it's an IBM Ping Master. Uh, that's a sort of normal layout except you have the, the F1 to F12 keys are missing on the top. Hmm. And Then you have a smaller numpad which has just the numbers and th- three mappable keys on top. And then you have, just have a field of four by five completely remappable keys. Uh, if you Google for IBM Ping Master and go to the images, you'll find, uh, you'll find a picture of it. And um, So it's uh, because you have a big blob of 20 remappable keys, which um, they're actually, you can take a plastic, this has a, the key has a plastic uh, translucent cover, which it can take off and you have, uh, it comes with stickers so you can make your own keys Hmm. and tape it on in, in, I think, the end of the 80s. So that was interesting. That's Uh, really cool. Yeah. So I I mapped the keys I use most in a, for me, nice and logical way. Uh, but nothing too fancy. A uh, QMK has a lot of very interesting, very fancy controls and such, so I would like to play around with that sometime, but uh, as my current keyboard is very, very old, so I needed a converter thing, and TMK works perfect for that. Hmm.
2: That's interesting that you have an IBM board that doesn't have any function keys because most of the ones I've seen they're well known because they have all the way through F twenty four and all the crazy stuff. Oh uh,
1: yes, uh, I got an, a normal model one to F twelve, so the normal usual keys. But the the old ABM AS four hundred actually requires the F thirteen to F twenty four keys and it uses it quite a lot. So yeah, I know what now, I now know why they have F keys hmm. because IBM actually used all of them.
2: That sounds like a lot of like extra mental power to be able to use that many F-keys. I mean, <laughs> like Windows, you might use F4 every now and then, but other than you'll almost never touch the F-keys, then yeah, Linux, man. you know, use them on a regular mm-hmm. basis, but not anything above usually
1: 10. Yeah, true. Uh, but, I got F12 maps to give me a terminal now, so nice. But I mean, for the very old IBM machines, the F-keys were your only shortcuts, so there was no Control C or whatever, so you just had the f keys so it was 24 keys to remember instead of all the uh, key combinations you have in windows and linux and such and mm.
0: also I, i've seen it used a lot in like retail pos systems and in basically what would be best referred to as like green screen systems where mm. you you can take the your ui for all these purposes you can have those buttons listed at the bottom and change out as needed and have context aware prompts on what those what those function keys do
1: yeah absolutely i mean the the BMD, uh, they had it all context-aware. So in the bottom of the screen, you have the keys like F16 is uh, execute a command or F24 is go back and such. So it had it all listed down below. So that's you have it listed in there. And uh, it, for those machines, if you wanted to know anything to whatever line, press F1, and it gives you context-aware help in the 1990s. So that was pretty good.
2: Yeah, see, now we just have people who won't even read the man pages anymore, so it doesn't really matter.
1: <laughs> no, we all have Google and Stack Overflow. <laughs> If uh, Stack flow goes down, the the complete IT community will just shut down for a while.
2: You're not wrong. I, I'm in uh, <laughs> I'm in college for a computer and electrical engineering right now, and I every time I bring up like just look at the man page, they're like the what, and I'm like oh uh, yeah. oh my.
1: Well, in, in the defense of the people not looking at pages, most man pages are also written slightly unreadable. So yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. If you look at a, a small program, uh, it's fine. But if you look at, uh, like, uh, the, the tar commands or whatever, and you go to the man <laughs> page, just finding the correct uh, settings for that and how it works. And it's just one big uh, chunk of unreadable text. I so, was just
2: about to joke about tar, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's an easy one. Most people know it. So. But, well, I think yeah, it's like um, every,
0: you know, all these, all these Linux applications have these, you know, these really obscure edge cases that they have to list out the commands for, you know, Mm. and that, that helped It clogs. It clogs your man page with a bunch of, you know, flags you may use once in a blue moon. That's why they're there. But, you know,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, that, and like a lot of the Linux man pages, just because Linux has that nice piping system. So you can, you know, chain a lot of commands together to make something nice. Usually the man page will have a section for the, if it's run interactively versus not. And that makes everything a nightmare.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. that, that adds, uh, just doubles the amount of manpage not worse. So, I mean, I'm not yeah, complaining.
2: It's... I love the ability to chain commands on Linux. It's probably the most irritating thing when I use Windows to not be able to just open a command LS and grep for whatever I want.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Windows in that sense is more uh, GUI oriented. I think PowerShell in Windows can do a bit more than your normal commands in Windows, but I haven't used it that much. I, I use Windows for day to day work. Um, mostly because Office and such, yeah, mm-hmm. there is not really anything equivalent on Linux. Um,
2: have you tried modern versions of LibreOffice?
1: I have for when I need to write something at home, but uh, I haven't tried it in a more... I mean, if you're if for work, when you're working with uh, 40 or 50 or 500 people, uh, then having the, the office, a the modern office with uh, collaboration features and such, ah, it's, it's really helpful. That um, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, for just uh, for, for people writing documents for school or personal documents, I think LibreOffice works perfectly fine and has all the features you need. Mm-hmm. Um, but for big or for companies working in collaboration and such, uh, I think Microsoft Office is still very suitable for that. And I don't oh, think there's sure. any open source. Uh, uh, a project that can deal with it in the same way, but might be wrong
2: I think LibreOffice does have collaborative collaborative features now, but I do definitely see the issues with running an organization um My mom actually recently just started up a her her own legal business and mm-hmm. uh she has to use Microsoft Office because if i we are trying to use LibreOffice because she has to work between word perfect and word files on a regular basis and the issue is if you try to open some of the really complex formatted Word documents in LibreOffice, mm-hmm. LibreOffice just looks at you and has no idea what it's doing
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's very true. Um, I think it's also only because especially the older words formats how, how a dot doc file is built up is still somewhat mysterious but yeah LibreOffice doesn't it, it it tries but it doesn't always succeed
2: I'm actually pretty sure that nobody at Microsoft knows how the docx format works either.
1: Uh, probably <laughs> there's a suppose. there's
2: a famous rant from somebody in the source code of uh, I don't know why source code is even released something with the photoshop psd spec and how the psd spec is such a nightmare
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah
2: where it's like the there's literally bugs that they've repeatedly kept in the code because without the bugs it doesn't work the way that's now expected
1: Ah, perfect. Those are the best kind of bugs. Like, remember, the debug statement stops working. Insert the debug statement. Everything works fine. So, leave it in?
2: Sorry, I had one yesterday where inserting a comment made my code. Where like If I took the comment out, my code broke.
1: Perfect. <laughs> was, it something, uh, was it something from FPGA or uh, not even that? Because I have the same experience with, well, any FPGA tool so far.
2: Uh, actually, it was uh, with the QMK firmware. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. I have no idea why, oh. but I'm like, okay, the comment's going back in.
1: Yeah, just leave it in, never touch. <laughs> Sometimes it's fine.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm curious why an FPGA comment would matter, though, because you would think that just VHDL is VHDL, it gets compiled so many times over anyway to get it to eventually the NAND logic.
1: Well, I'm going to say that it's because most FPGA tools just suck. <laughs> I know,
2: this has been a trend in every
1: Feral Logic episode. Yeah, yeah. We've ranted about FPGA tools. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I, glad
0: it's also known in the industry that this is terrible too.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I, I was working on that while I was listening to the uh, Zero One podcast which you ranting about FPGA tools at the same moment that my FPGA tool was just being in an <laughs> enormous pain in the butt. So, yeah, I know the feeling. So
2: my question is to you. Use, uh, Oh, wow. As I can't think of the name for it again, the Xilinx toolchain, uh, or Quartus.
1: Uh, I've used all of them. They all suck. But uh, at the moment, I got a... So it's mostly uh, Vivado. Uh, in this case, it wasn't Vivado being horrible. It was the documentation of Xilinx being horrible. But I mean, that's sort of the same thing, I guess. Uh, I was working on a, a DDR3 memory control. Because, of course, if you have an FPGA dev port from the official supplier from Xilinx, there are no examples for anything except your blink and LED. So you're figuring out how to in how the memory controller from Xilinx works, and the answer is mostly with magic. I mean, so, anything
2: with FPGAs is mostly oh, with magic, though.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. Um, the documentation for it uh, was um, pretty horrible, and it's the the memory controller you can uh, talk to it in a few different buses. So you have a fairly simple user bus in which you just say, here's a write command, sign me when you're done. Here's a read command, give me the data. when you're done, doing all the annoying memory stuff. Um, But things like the read and write commands, which uh, documentation says it's a zero for a write and a one for a read, it turned out to be, of course, the opposite. Uh, Just simple things like that, that um, it, it turned out that the table listing the read and write commands in the section for the simpler interface wasn't meant for that interface. It was meant for a completely different interface, but it just ended on that page somehow. So (laughs) I I guess in the end, the document was technically completely correct. It was just horrible. (laughs) So yeah, that's uh, about an hour and a half ago. My DDR3 memory controller is now up and running. So I'm pretty happy with that.
2: Nice. I uh, have a Xilinx pink dev board, the one that runs Python through the Linux embedded oh, arm, Linux, yeah, yeah that, that weird board. Thankfully, the documentation on that's actually pretty nice until you start doing some of the more complex stuff where you're getting in where everything's trash, but <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good until that point.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would guess, but correct me if I'm wrong, but is it the case that the documentation for the Python side is all quite all right, and when you're going for the FPGA side, it quickly stops being all right, or is that not the case? The
2: the even the FPGA side is decent because it's oh. one of Xilinx's newer cores. Like their mm. their documentation has improved with time. Um in my opinion at least. I have mm-hmm. a it's a Zinc 7020 on the board, so All right,
1: it's a fairly powerful one as well, I think.
2: Yeah, it is. And so I th- I think one of the reasons they went so hard on the documentation for it too and why it's not so bad is because they were kind of pushing the envelope with it by putting the ARM core in with it. Um mm. Like, it has an embedded separate processor in the same package. So with that, I think they wanted to be sure the documentation was decent because they wanted people to actually buy it and use it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's that's very true. The d fairly popular among hobbyists as well because they're not too expensive. There are a few cheaper, like, sub-100 US dollar dev boards with them. There's some, but...
2: Some of the sub 100 ones have really crappy pinouts. Like trying to access them is just atrocious. They use like <laughs> like tenth of a millimeter pitch headers where you just can't even access know. it unless you have breakouts yeah. that cost twice the price anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean the connectors, just a set of connectors in single quantity will cost you as much as the dev board then.
2: Yeah, which they know yeah. that it's a way to force you to pay for more once you've already bought the board, which is just yeah. shady business practices. Yeah. Whereas with the pink board, it was a little bit more. I think I got it for right around 170 which is still a fair amount of change, but it also oh, yeah. has, like, HDMI ports built on as an Ethernet port. It has all of that stuff built in.
1: Yeah, that, that's pretty nice. I got the the uh, RTA7, so it's the, the same Arctic core, but just not with the uh, CPU inside, because I'm wanting to use it mostly for FPGA stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the examples that exist... Uh, generally just use a soft core CPU. So I'm like, yeah, but if I wanted a soft core, I would have, or wanted a CPU, I would have bought the other board. Why am I getting these examples? But
2: yeah, why? I don't know. Well, it seems like most people who get an FPGA and end up implementing a soft core and that just doesn't make sense to me anymore. Like if you want a CPU on your board, put a CPU on your board.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if it's only one chip, I mean, just from production side of things, uh, scopes, I think uh, the newer ones just have one of those sync uh, FPGAs in, as well. Mm-hmm. And they're they're for for a modern oscilloscope they're cheap probably because they just use one chip that does everything from the user interface but also the the uh, triggering the sampling rate and such. So from that perspective, even if you don't need the big CPU like the the arm it's an arm cortex a9 like a linux capable CPU in them right?
2: Uh, I'm not sure what the actual chip is necessarily but i know it's linux capable and it's actually pretty fast too yeah like it has i think my board has one or two gigs of ram i'm not sure i think you can actually order it with both um but either way it runs linux fast enough that i could actually comfortably use it as my day-to-day like day-to-day
1: driver oh wow that's that's pretty fast but i mean i'm not going to say i'd want to but i could (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it, it still works it's still a linux capable um CPU, so it's it has to be at least somewhat fast. It's um, kind
2: of like a pi. It's almost it's almost exactly like using a pi.
1: Okay, yeah, that's that's something I've experienced with. It's uh, doable. Um, but if you need an FPGA and some CPU, and you don't need a, like a full CPU, like a normal microcontroller would be enough, then I I'd say it would make sense to just put it all in the FPGA, uh, even if if it's a soft core, just because you have a single chip, your board is smaller, it's a bit simpler to use, everything is in one thing. I mean, if you're going to make uh, 10,000 of them and your board is suddenly half the size, it's it'll save yeah. you a pretty penny. So that makes sense using soft core in, in some sense is absolutely useful, but just basing all your examples on a soft core is a bit uh, bit odd to me. And
2: I suppose it makes the IO a bit more fluid because with the way the IO works between the, ARM, the integrated ARM processor and the FPGA is really strange. It's through memory and it's not the most comfortable way of doing it it would make more sense to me to just directly have lines connect like you would in a normal soft core
1: yeah yeah true i i've used not the i've used the altera intel now uh, uh version of that i think it was a cyclone five with a also a dual core arm processor inside and communicating between those two was because it was a very new dev board at the time was um yeah uh, we ended up just you have uh, it has a one gigabyte of uh, ddr memory and we just reserved 265 megabytes for the FPGA. And in, in Linux, which was running on the uh, CPU inside, we just said, well, you have 750 megabytes of RAM. And the here's a pointer to the top 20, 250 megabytes and enjoy. Yep. So that works. But yeah, interesting.
2: And you pray you don't have any weird memory conflicts.
1: Uh, you'll find out. Don't worry.
2: <laughs> which I'm pretty sure is your way of saying we did.
1: Yep. Yeah, <laughs> And it was for a school project. It was a project to uh, capture video with a uh, camera, external camera, and do some real-time processing on that. And the moment that your Linux operating system is trying to use the, the top 250 megabytes of memory, just for the OS, everything breaks down mm-hmm. very quickly.
2: I feel like that has to be a kind of entertaining breakdown though. Like it has to fail kind of spectacularly.
1: And um, you all mean, Linux will try to write top of the memory, and then on a later moment, read it back. And it turns out the data has now been turned turned into edited video. So <laughs> it, it just directly kernel panics and stops functioning altogether.
2: Oh, I was imagining something more like uh, if you, you managed to have like the frame buffer in the middle of the memory that it was trying to read, it would just freak out. But eh. I've seen mm. some very interesting kernel <laughs> panics doing some very, yeah. very dumb stuff. yeah. Almost all of mine are related to video too, because I have two video cards in my system from each vendor. I have an NVIDIA and an AMD card. You can imagine how much fun drivers are.
1: I mean, just just one of them is already horrible, but driver-wise, I mean, newer AMD cards are quite good, but having both of them, I can imagine that being very interesting, yes. Uh, A friend of mine has seven or eight monitors and for that uh, he has i think three different graphics cards the same vendor i think but three different ones and uh, <laughs> every few months an update happens and stuff dies
2: <laughs> sounds about right
1: um, yeah i mean and then of course running uh, he is running arch so you get all the new stuff directly so yep. Yeah
2: actually ironically so I, with the two graphics cards and everything in arch i have no issues at all with my graphics drivers everything is fine and dandy when i boot windows oh it's bad i'm actually talking in windows right now because uh, discord runs a hair better in windows just because well not discord the drivers for the thing i'm using for my for my mic works better in windows and it's entertaining um Namely, I randomly have issues where some of my monitors will randomly disconnect, like for a split second, and then come back. And in Linux, that doesn't happen.
3: Oh, uh,
2: interesting! I think it might be just from the raw bandwidth I'm trying to put through because three of my monitors are <laughs> 4K, and when you have a resolution of eleven five twenty or something at 4K, it's it, it's strange oh enough.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I guess for you, the the two graphics cards is also just to make sure you have, can have three monitors at that resolution, or is there a actually difficult reason?
2: I, my single uh, vega 56 graphics card which yeah i see the irony um is uh <laughs> totally capable of displaying all three three 4k monitors and the 1080p drawing tablet i have mm-hmm. the uh other monitor is other monitor other graphics card is strictly for cuda compute because there's a few uh, things right. that sadly won't work with um whatever the amd open compute is and mm, yeah. cuda is nice
1: yeah that is more like a computer card but yeah it'll mess stuff up i guess
2: yeah, I could have bought a full compute card instead of using a consumer card, but it's cheaper um,
1: to buy a consumer card. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, I think NVIDIA released modified consumer cards for for mining with no video outputs, but I have no clue how that would function for just compute.
2: Uh, so I know they That's work for just, for just it. compute, and they're fine, but the issue is the... Drivers are strange, and I don't really want to risk it for Linux. (laughs) I know know they work fine for Windows mining, but why would you mine in Windows anyway? And I just don't want to mess with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's probably some weird... I think it was just for the Chinese markets, and it'll probably have weird special drivers, so that'll be extra fun. Yeah. yeah, I actually saw a
2: a video recently from uh, Linus Tech Tips where they managed to use one of the NVIDIA mining cards that was lacking display out for gaming.
1: Huh. So they uh, the,
2: they copied Austria? the frame buffer through to the Intel integrated GPU and then just piped it back out. So it worked.
1: Guess it should work, but um, I, I I guess if you I'm I'm afraid that if you would just remove the PCB board, that would just be a place for a connector for an HDMI. And I'm afraid that, that that might just work as well if you just flash the BIOS to a normal one.
2: To my knowledge, it doesn't because they also oh. put like some extra weird stuff on the chip to avoid you doing that. I, th- I think they actually specifically went out of their way to avoid the cards being used <laughs> like that.
1: Oh, that's too bad.
2: I'm sure you've seen the Torvalds thing with NVIDIA? Yes. Yep. Do you yep. know what we're talking about, Vortex? I actually do not. Uh, what are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for our viewers that are uh, mature enough to look this one up, there's a video of uh, Linus at a conference talking about uh, the driver stack and about how NVIDIA Uh, Is only releasing you know proprietary drivers as blobs, and he uh, shows his middle finger in a not exactly pleasant way and tells Nvidia exactly where they should go. Where's that? Uh, To a very, (laughs) very good place. (laughs) 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 (sighs) Which just seeing the creator of Linux not be overly happy with somebody like that is massively entertaining.
1: Well, well, I think uh, the creator of Linux is uh, well known for his rants i guess it was expected anyways but yeah um i guess if you're working that hard to get a nice kernel or whatever open source project up and running and maintaining it always i mean it's I, i'm guessing that he spends a lot of hours on that uh having a very big company like NVIDIA not cooperating at all is very frustrating i can imagine that
2: well i i've even seen it get worse now though because not only are the drivers bad but they're just not keeping up with stuff so i don't know if how much Linux stuff you do, have you used Wayland at all? Nope. So if you try to not use X, because X is a giant pile of trash, um, and you said to try to use Wayland, which is also a giant pile of trash.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of why I was avoiding yeah. it, until it's not. so it's better functioning. So somewhere 2040, I guess.
2: Honestly, I think Wayland is better depending on what you're doing. I think for the vast majority of things, if you're willing to compile everything to have Wayland support, yada, 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 it is better um there's a few weird bugs here and there that irritate me like it can't do mouse capture which is annoying if you have a full screen mm. like if you have like a game where it needs to constantly move the mouse back to the center of the window oh, nice. like it can't do that there's a few weird oh. things like that it was having issues with but uh for the main compositors out there they're all running off of it's like wgl roots or something like that which is a big project for wayland a big open source project mm. and the main compositor right now that that's used by is called sway it's the clone of i3 for wayland hmm. and currently if you run that with an nvidia card you have to pass it a flag that is you know dashes in between each word my next gpu will not be nvidia <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow <laughs> otherwise it just doesn't launch
1: that's uh that's a very subtle way of putting that
2: <laughs> because nvidia's drivers with wayland are an absolute nightmare to program around
1: yeah yeah, i do have an nvidia card but uh, mostly because i was able to buy it fairly cheaply so yeah
2: well that, in general they are actually faster for the price like i'm not gonna diss on them for that
1: yeah true and i i got a a zx 1060 for fairly cheap because uh, someone was selling it a friend of mine so that thought that was quite nice uh, and i don't game that much so i don't need anything faster and um i use very old stable debian so i don't have Wayland yet so it's it's fine for me it works i'm but curious yeah. if you're
2: using Vivado and if you're using that computer for compiling at all i've noticed that some of the Vivado stuff especially for dsp can use cuda for accelerated figuring out how things should be set up is that
1: relevant for you at all uh as uh, uh, because Vivado can't even use more i doubt it'll do anything with graphics cards to be honest i haven't tried
2: well, okay. But... So when I looked at it, it wasn't Vivado directly. <laughs> it was using Vivado through MATLAB through ModelSim that was using CUDA. Oh no! I don't know if those you've are... done any of that.
1: I have not, and those are the three programs. I don't want to. <laughs> I can't I...
2: blame you on that.
1: I I, I know Vivado. I've worked with, but I have worked with ModelSim. Um, Standalone, they're all annoying. I think combining them into one huge big pile of software is going to not be fun. So... <laughs> I'll I'll pass on that. I mean, the DSP stuff I do is all fairly simple, slow audio stuff. So uh, if you go to do really fancy uh, DSP stuff, like really filtering out hundreds of uh, megahertz of sample uh, sample rate of sensors or something, then I can't imagine why you want to do that. But for just getting slow audio signals and not super fast sensors, it'll be fine for me.
2: You know, I suppose if, while we're at it, we may as well you know complete the quartet of awful and put LabVIEW in there too.
1: Yeah, no, no. no, that doesn't sound
3: fun. <laughs> I, I don't uh, know I if have... You have.
2: No, I have Go very ahead.
1: few experience with LabVIEW, but uh, enough to know that I would prefer not to get more experience with it. <laughs> to say it nicely.
2: From what I can tell, it's actually fairly decent software for what it does. It's just expensive and seems needlessly complicated sometimes.
1: Yeah, it, it yeah. is. It is expensive. And it'll work fine. And people who work with it might be quite happy with it. I don't know. I don't know people that work with LaView. I've seen it for for measurement setups, like having a whole rack of oscilloscopes and multimeters and such to automate measurements. Uh, that's why I've seen it being used. And if you're talking to two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars of measuring equipment then i guess the price of a lab license isn't really that much of a problem so yeah depends my, on the scenario.
2: my brother is a mechanical engineer that does a lot of stuff with fluid dynamics and stuff i use this LabVIEW oh, extensively but at the same time it looks like a nightmare
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, I guess with mechanical engineering uh, uh, prototypes and and uh, general the price of the stuff you work with is also a bit higher than electronics and embedded stuff, so yeah. then license costs are much less of an issue.
2: He also uses MATLAB regularly, though, so I kind of have to question his judgment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, Vortex, have you ever worked with any of this stuff?
0: Uh, I don't like to think about it. No, uh, actually, the, uh, <laughs> uh, FRC, uh, the first robotics Competition, uses, um, you have an option of programming in LabVIEW, and hmm. it, it works... That's <laughs> I mean it's one of those things that when you come at something like a problem like LabVIEW um you know when we have to do troubleshooting on the robots like oh you use LabVIEW hold on let me go find the one person in the competition that knows what you're talking about <laughs> it's LabVIEW you know most teams use Java or C or some form of C++ or something mm-hmm. it's like oh LabVIEW's there thumbs
2: up you you use it but um Wow. <laughs> oh. oh. I actually you I don't even mind this much. MATLAB is the one that I just can't stand and I have to deal with on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, I, I used lab, uh, MATLAB for, for my education with a... a or so detecting uh, uh, detecting stuff like detecting a sign and such, which was in, in, in MATLAB. And I just ended up learning myself Python because that was easier to just do it in Python. And because the teacher liked Python as well, it was completely allowed, luckily.
2: Well, I mean, they're basically the same language anyway. Just MATLAB's a strangely like nonlinear for some stuff, and does have uh, GPU acceleration, which like that actually is pretty cool. I'm not going to
1: argue. Yeah. With that, but true, but in Python you can just type import thing and you <laughs> there you go, you're done. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> import my entire problem
2: solution. <laughs> Run one line. Done.
3: Yeah, well, it's Python,
2: <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm actually surprised they haven't implemented import answer yet, where it just fixes whatever you're trying to do.
1: That would be interesting. Yeah.
0: That reminds me a lot of the, um. there's a command you can install in Linux Um, that if you, if you imagine a word with F and K at the, it uh, starts with F and ends at K. Mm-hmm. um, will automatically correct your last line if you type it in. And it's actually fairly, it's got some interesting AI to figure out what you meant to do. <laughs>
2: So uh, fun story on that. I actually convinced my uh, my school has a shared computer science server that everybody can access. It's actually pretty powerful, like under twenty eight threads, tons of RAM, all all the fun stuff. Uh, if you message the admins, you can get them to install most programs you want. I actually got that got them to install that. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: However, uh, like they renamed it. Oh, they renamed uh-huh. it to Oops.
1: Oops. Yeah. That's, that's bad. <laughs> a little bit more friendly but yeah I, I like the fact that someone made that program and with that's commands and then it's actually a pretty nice and very functional program but it it's probably started off as a joke most likely yeah and it just slowly turned out into something actually quite useful
2: i think it's wonderful how many linux open and open source projects have horrible names <laughs>
1: yeah 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 like
2: I mean you have Ubuntu where they name everything with like the alliterative uh animal names, but then you have things like a convert literature program, which I think you might be able to imagine the acronym they used, and uh that was yep. entertaining to say the least. it yep. works really well, but it's a certain female body part for a name,
1: yep, yep, yep. But I mean, for, for open source stuff, a lot of things just start off as hobby projects. So there is no company. There is no company policy on naming and such. So yeah, that's, I guess, how you end up with some interesting programs with some interesting names and such. But the, yeah, the only problem is when I like you go about it. it.
2: When you go get a job professionally and they look at your GitHub uh, history, and they're like, huh, so we see you work on a project named the blank.
1: And you're like, yeah. <laughs> then again, I mean, if you're even as, yeah. if the name is a bit weird, uh, but if it's a very, uh, it's a frequently used program that's quite popular, I guess it's just very good that you have it on your GitHub.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. And realistically, everybody's adults. We know what we're doing. Hmm. Like, hopefully, they'll probably find it funny too.
1: Yep, hopefully that'll help. If they don't find it funny, then you might want to work.
2: Honestly, I'm not sure I'd want to work for somewhere that didn't find that funny. Like my ideal job is somewhere where everybody can get along and kind of have some fun. Like I would never want to work for somebody like Google or Microsoft or Apple. Just anything that big sounds not fun. Mostly Microsoft sounds like an actual seven couple of hell. <laughs> but uh, just I, I would want to be somewhere where, it's, where people can have fun. I don't know if that's true with what you're doing at all, but like if you look at with what loyal and those other people in our uh, group chat do where they're all working on a you know cool business where you know they get to blow stuff up on a regular basis and stuff like that that's kind of what i want to end up doing
1: yeah yeah absolutely i agree with you on that uh, i i did work for nxp for a little bit so i had an internship there uh, and i explicitly looked for a smaller company after that um, not because it wasn't nice there or something uh, but because if it is a very big company like a multinational. Generally, there is a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of layers between every every layer of management. So uh, I, I like uh, smaller companies in a sense. It's just a lot quicker to get things done. There's a lot less bureaucracy and uh, management layers in between. So that's uh, that's something I experienced at least.
2: For me, part of the reason why I would enjoy the you know small companies, because I know you can get away with some things that most companies wouldn't do, like going back to... Um uh crontech or with our friends over there um uh, like where they have the upside down lawnmower for shredding things like most businesses <laughs> would never think about it just from a liability perspective or then places you know where they'd be like "Hey, let's build a tesla coil just as a fun company project like most places would be like liability nope no way
1: yeah <laughs> yeah true i mean if you but for some companies like like crontech they're sort of related to the product they're making like if you're making a very good high speed camera then it's at least somewhat work-related to blow stuff up, because you can look at it <laughs> in technology. And it's a good excuse, at least. But I guess if you're doing stuff like that, you, of course, have to make sure that it's safe somewhat. Oh, of course. As I far mean, as possible. And, yeah, uh, be adults about it.
2: Uh, actually, so, I'll, I I don't think the company has to be entirely small for that. It just can't be too big. Like with my, with my brother, where he's working, making these uh, valves and whatnot, uh, they actually got a contract to make... Uh, valve a distillery. So he was mm-hmm. able to build a, you know, full distillery and they got to make their own alcohol on on the premises <laughs> and have some fun with that. Oh, and, that's cool. Uh then also when testing, you know, what kind of pressure can these pumps handle, they get to make some pretty insane explosions out there. It's uh the business is maybe I don't know, 5 5 or 6 miles from my house and I've heard some of the booms from all the way out <laughs> here and and I oh, live wow. in a forest, so the trees kind of pad out the sound too. So to be able oh, to wow. hear about this far.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, then you need some some serious explosions. If you make dirty uh, uh, tubes and such, and you just keep on building the pressure, eventually something will explode. But if you're up in, in very high pressure, it'll explode quite quite well.
2: Well, what I didn't realize with some of this for the you know safety end of it, uh, he was telling, telling me about some stuff the other day where Uh, They have some valves where they can get, like, microscopic pinhole leaks where the amount of pressure coming out of it is effectively an invisible laser beam-like line of, uh, you know, gas or fluid being shot out so fast that if you were to put your hand through it, it'd just immediately, like, slice your hand in half. (laughs) And I'm like, yep, suddenly I'm not interested in that field.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lovely, yeah. Uh, I guess everything, especially something like that, or working with CNC machines and such. There's always uh, the the, the bigger the machine, the more the the more force in the machine, the the more badly it'll go wrong. I mean, if you look at at like like laser cutters or those uh, water jet cutters for metal, I mean, put anything near that and it's just clean through. Mm -hmm.
2: And like I suppose we're not ones to talk. Like I play with ten thousand volts on a regular basis, and I've hit myself with a few times. So.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you know what you're doing, uh, it's, it's fine. But yeah, it will hurt. I don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. so I, I, I got a, a, a lab power supply. Uh, Wait in Germany, I think. Uh, it's 0 to 1250 volts. Oh my God. Controllable. Wow. It's also 0 to, I think, 750 milliamps, at least very well up into the lethal level of current <laughs> as well. Um, oh my yeah it, it's about 50 kilograms it's massive, it's heavy, it's big it still works fine um, but the connectors on the front are some sort it's a, a coaxial kind of connectors, because it's a safety connector for high voltage, but just the connector is I think 100 euros per connector and it has one for the plus and one for the minus so making a set of cables is going to be very expensive, so I got all the parts to convert it to a more normal a connector but i also don't really want to mess with the insides of it because yeah. just the capacitors in there are massive and uh, that's the discharge you really don't want
2: it's it's the kind of thing you leave in the closet for a year while it discharges before you're <laughs> going to touch it
1: uh yeah well it, it is a lap made for for serious work so i it probably has all the the safety parts like discharge resistance as such uh, the company that made it still exists, so I emailed them for figuring out whatever the actual connector is. And I said to them, like, "Yeah, I'm trying to. It still works, I think. But uh, those connectors, do you still have them? Do you know where to buy them?" And I replied to me, "Yeah, we still stock them. They're so I think 75 or 100 euros per connector. Yada yeah, yada. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, we also included all the schematics in 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 the attachments. Good luck. <laughs> so that's it's pretty awesome, nice." But-
0: you have to wonder if that good luck was more of a like, uh, <laughs> you know, post it yeah. on YouTube when you eventually kill yourself, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, who knows? But it is, it is. I did like the tool finds uh, for that. So that has been quite helpful. But yeah, I haven't opened it up and got to the uh, uh, Safe High Voltage connectors, which are a few euros each. They're lots more affordable and still rated up to a few thousand volts. Uh, but I haven't bothered putting them in yet. So. Who knows? Maybe do that soon. Uh,
2: just to uh, scare you a little bit more. Uh, most of the reason I have that 10 kV transformer is for doing the Lichtenberg burning. But for wire, I, <laughs> I don't have any high voltage wire laying around. I use speaker wire, uh, and like not thick um, stuff either.
1: Yeah, well, if it works, I guess. But is
2: it oxygen free and gold plated? Does it so. th- <laughs> does it make the Lichtenberg <laughs> tree look better? <laughs> <laughs> Only if you use uh, gold plated Ethernet cables.
1: Yeah, I I've seen gold plated optical cables as well, oh my like God, the Toslink one, gold Yeah.
2: Oh my. Okay. In all seriousness, though, I have to cut them a smidgen of slack uh, with how bad cables are being sold now for just not actually meeting their specs, trying to find DisplayPort cables that are actually rated for what they say they're rated when you're running 4K 60Hz is a pain Mm. in the butt. So buying some of the ridiculously over-engineered ones from like Monster or whatnot, even if they're incredibly expensive, To get ones that you know work is actually just makes sense sometimes, which is stupid, but
1: (laughs) yeah. But I think it was a similar issue. I think with the USB C cables, um, when the Mm -hmm. USB C for charging just got popular, I think it was an engineer at Google or some other big tech company that just went through a lot of cables on Amazon and just uh, turned them all apart to see if they actually meet spec, and like 20% maybe did. So yeah.
2: So actually, I had to order some because I was doing some stuff where I needed the absolute full ten gigabit per second through USB C on three point mm-hmm. one, and there was a total of like two or three in this huge uh, sheet of like a hundred that were tested that actually passed. And I was fortunate that sheet existed because I needed to buy one of those.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: It's it's absolutely yeah. crazy. And for a display port it's just as bad, but nobody's actually gone through and tested them because you can't really because the manufacturer's constantly changing their process. With, so a cable that passes now might not pass in a week.
1: Oh yeah, that's 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 lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Fun.
2: And I'm really abusing the spec because my two of my monitors, well, all three of them are 4K sixty hertz, but two of them support free sync too, so then that's an extra, mm. you know, with the adaptive sync on there too. And then yep. they can also do HDR if I really want to turn it on and lower the color bit.
1: Oh, and wow.
2: As soon as you do that, like, I'm, I'm abusing the spec in every way. Like, it has to fully meet the spec or it just doesn't work.
1: Yeah, you're using all the features. Mm-hmm.
2: And like, usually I leave FreeSync off and don't use HDR, mostly because HDR makes everything kind of a pain.
1: And mm-hmm.
2: FreeSync doesn't work as well as you'd like it to and ever on <laughs> any monitor. It's a wonderful idea in theory, assuming you're willing to spend $500 on a monitor that's actually going to support it fully.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, I think NVIDIA had uh, all monitors were quite expensive, but uh, looking at the tech, especially in the beginning that they placed in every monitor, I could understand the price at least.
2: But So yeah, I saw some stuff on that recently. Part of the reason for the high price on that is NVIDIA knowing that it wasn't going to be a very high sale margin of the number of people for buying monitors, decided, eh, let's just use an FPGA in the shipped models. They never make the ASIC.
1: Yeah, especially, I mean, at the start, they just sent out FPGAs in there. I mean, by now, I'm guessing they have an ASIC. I hope they nope, have.
2: It is but, still FPGA.
1: Oh, wow. Well, if you were looking for a uh, affordable FPGA dev board,
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I don't even know how affordable it would be because those monitors are still like five hundred bucks a pop.
1: Yeah, I, I saw the 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 G Sync modules on eBay for like fifty bucks. Oh, uh, but the FPGA is the FPGA is so powerful that you need the fully blown Quartus license for that, which is another fifteen hundred bucks, I think. Figures. Yep.
2: The licensing so... of the FPGA software just bothers me. Like, why <laughs> increase the price of your chips and make the software free, guys? Come on
1: yeah then again if you look at the price of the chips i don't know if you can actually increase them anymore
2: yeah that's not wrong either
1: yeah (laughs) i mean it is a a low volume especially for the fancy FPGAs, and it is a big chip uh so it is more expensive than a microcontroller in which case there being millions and millions made per year but yeah FPGAs are uh especially the, the the fun ones are expensive
2: so I'm curious on that, actually, with the software. I've noticed for most FPGA software, when I download it, it makes me check some sort of box about export laws in the US. Um, do you have any issues with getting the software over there? or out? Because almost all of it says, like, this cannot be taken out of the US period. Like, you can't bring it out on a laptop with it, anything like that.
3: Oh, so, wow. Um...
2: I didn't know if you've run into any like things on like export boxes or exposed to the equivalent to import boxes when you're downloading it.
1: No, but then again, if you're uh, clicks all the boxes and presses next, so yeah. yeah. Uh, but I haven't had any issues downloading software and such. I, I do know that for some uh, stuff uh, exporting uh, or making products for China and North Korea and such is a problem, but um, I well, think the... if you're not in doing stuff with those countries, I think it's fine for almost everything.
2: This wasn't even for ship products, this was just for like downloading Vivado, it wanted you to make sure that like you weren't taking the Vivado download out of the US.
1: Oh wow, yeah, that's interesting. I, I the only reason I can think of is perhaps like the license agreement might be two different ones for that, perhaps. But well no we've had zero issues with that, luckily. I mean one of the few things that
2: I read into it a tiny bit and it looked like it was mostly for like military applications. They wanted to be sure that for the FPGAs didn't wind up in like products used by foreign militaries, which was just oh, bizarre what? to me. But I mean I understand, but like at the same time do you really think you're gonna stop it like that? <laughs> Like, if you can't uh, stop me from pirating a movie, do you really think you can stop me from distributing FPGA software?
1: Well, that's true. But then again, if it's for military stuff, I think that the, the U.S. military has a little bit more budget for lawyers. So, yeah. Mm, and I mean, it's not for hobbyists anyway. So that's just for businesses. Um, if, if a hobbyist makes something, I don't think they're going to complain that much. No, if they're never going to care. No, if you're, if you're a business that actually makes profits on, on products, then they'll care. but. I think for hobbyists most of those things are probably maybe not essentially legal, but who cares?
2: Yeah. Which is actually really interesting because I think with the hobbyist space taking off more and more, I think a lot of governments, not just US government, it's trying to figure out like how do we regulate this?
1: <laughs> yep. Oh which, well,
2: honestly I think it is important to have some of that regulation. Like there's um a project I was looking at getting 'cause I have I actually have pretty severe heart issues. And so there is mm-hmm. it's like an open Hardy patch or something. I don't remember the name of it exactly. It was sold on crowd supply. That was actually a fairly nice EKG, ECG, whatever the heck it is uh, that yeah. you can slap on and does actually really good heart heart monitoring. And I was thinking about getting one of those, but I could also see why they potentially want to be very careful about regulations regarding that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I do know that the the Apple, uh, it has a heart rate monitor and a fairly decent one, I think, even for, for measuring your how your heart is doing and such. But I also mm-hmm. know that in Europe, I think it's not even activated. You can't use it. Huh. That's interesting. I'm not, I'm like... not sure about that, but I think that some of those features are not, uh, not being used because it would give uh, people a false sense of security. They say, mm-hmm. go to a doctor. He has the real equipment. Measure there. Don't trust your smartwatch. So I think that was the reasoning behind that, but I'm not entirely sure if it's just seven warnings you have to click away or if it's actually unusable.
2: You know, you have such a massive opportunity here to make jokes about the U.S. healthcare system, and you haven't, I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll leave that to the Americans to do that.
2: <laughs> uh, no, because, like, some of the heart rate monitoring stuff on that, like, you're not wrong on that at all. I have a, I had a Fitbit I was wearing for a little while to try to keep tabs on it, and it just freaked out, which is kind of expected for what my heart does, but at the same time, it... It was so hilariously wrong that it was impressive.
1: <laughs> so wow,
2: like you will just randomly stop recording for a few minutes sometimes because it was like you, your heart can't possibly be doing that, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I just looked it up. The, the, the ECG is uh, for the new Apple Watch is only functioning in the US. Huh? So they actually checked the serial number to see which country it has been sold. So if you would go to Europe, buy an Apple Watch here for whatever reason, go to back to the U.S., it would still not function.
2: So I've actually hit that issue before, not with the heart monitoring, but I uh, tr- when I first got my first smartwatch, I got oh I don't even remember what it was. It was some LG watch, <laughs> and I ended up getting what was supposed to be an international model, and it wouldn't even let you activate it in U.S. Like it wouldn't connect to your phone. <laughs> it just told you straight up wow. no. So, which um, was kind of irritating because the International Auto was significantly cheaper.
1: You know, that now you know why. Yep. Well,
2: <laughs> uh, I that's, suppose uh, that's like the same thing with Windows licenses and activating because you can go get like a Vietnamese copy of Windows for like five bucks.
1: Yeah, or Pirate or, or like a stolen credit card bought once and such. Uh, so you can get it fairly cheap. But as far as I know, you can still use your old Windows 7 key to upgrade to Windows 10 and Windows still really doesn't care. I think I end up no, having to activate about.
2: Windows relatively regularly because I end up I corrupt Windows so often it's embarrassing. <laughs> so uh, on a not a, it, um, on a basis, I don't really want to admit to I have to completely reinstall, and sometimes it doesn't preserve the keys. Or if I upgrade my motherboard and then you know Windows ties it to the hardware, yeah. and then I have to then I can call up Windows and they can be like, "Who's your OEM?" And I'm like, "I am," and they're like what do you mean, sir? And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> so eventually, uh, I'm just like, fine, I'll just buy a new copy for $5 oh and not wow. worry about the ethics.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, my my staff has a computer repair store, and so I, I have helped them out there for quite a bit, and I, I have been on the phone with Microsoft for that issue quite a bit. And I have to say it has gotten better, like Windows is a little bit easier with just reminding the key and not, oh, no, you have changed your type of memory or you added memory, it's now invalid. Uh, those fun scenarios, uh, in which case, just call Microsoft, go to the menu, they'll fix it, it'll take 20 minutes. But at least it's a little bit more resilient if you change your graphics cards or memory or such. Windows 8 and 7 and 10, at least remember your key. I think with Windows XP, I think it was a bit more finicky. Just change your graphics cards and you have to reactivate. Yep. So, yeah.
2: That was a fun time. (laughs) Yep. I don't know about you, but my favorite thing is to spend an hour on the phone with Microsoft. It's just, it's wonderful every time. (laughs) I get to make new friends. I get transferred Uh, around like 10 different departments. I get to meet so many people with names that I'm sure (laughs) don't have any actual basis in reality.
1: uh, Yep yeah i think if yeah that has gotten better i'd say with with activating but yeah i've i've been on the phone with them for that issue as well
2: and like i can't really blame them because i don't want to know how many calls they get that are like chrome won't open and it's like why are you calling microsoft
1: yep <laughs> So like yeah, i can't blame
2: them at all mm-hmm. but still <laughs>
1: Yeah I I guess for a company like that their help desk, their help desk department will get a lot of calls and 80% is just completely unrelated to Microsoft and related to something completely different so yeah
2: There there was I don't know if you uh, look at XKCD comics at all there yeah. was uh one oh, it was an old one uh, with uh, somebody had a dream that they they called in and they uh, said some like weird special phrase and immediately transferred them to like the actual <laughs> support line for people who know Ugh. what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like, that one. Yeah. Can't we just get this in real life? Please? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Just yeah. yeah operator. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess it's the same with if you're into connection and they'll just first start the, the textbook have you reset your modem? Have you done that? Have you done that? And like at the end of the whole list and they're still not fixed and like, yeah, now we need someone else. So I just want to, how to get to the bottom of the list immediately. I need that.
0: Funny story. (laughs) First off, there's a reason why they have to ask that is because of the people who don't do that before they call in and it does fix problems. Um, Oh yeah. But I worked as a knock technician for Time War Cable at one point um, Mm -hmm. before my current job. And I was on a on a fix-it bridge for uh, a Cisco DWDM chassis. And they were having problems with um, one particular circuit on this DWDM chassis. Mm. And we were, we, Time War Cable at the time, when it still existed, had a contract with Cisco that, you know, you can get the top level of service with like a four-hour window to get you a new card oh. should something happen. Um, and, you know, ISPs went for that because that's what you needed to do. They would literally put something on a plane and fly to the card if it had to happen that way. Um, But we were talking Mm -hmm. with them and it's like, this is, you know, one of the core pieces of network gear for the company. It was having problems with one circuit and they, they legit asked us, um, have you tried to power cycle the chassis yet? (laughs) And everyone was kind of like dumbfounded for a second. And the answer was, well, no, because everything else (laughs) going through the chassis is fine. It's just this one circuit. It's like, well, you should probably try a power cycle. No, we're not power cycling it because that would take down the rest of the network. Oh. But even even Cisco Tech at times will tell you to try a power cycle something oh, for, Yeah. you know you know stupid expensive networking equipment.
1: Yeah, I mean, power cycling one thing that will just take everything else down with it.
2: So, having done more IT tech and support than I really ever want to in my life. One of the more common ones I get isn't have you tried turning it off and back on again. It's have you tried plugging it in?
1: Yep. been there. I've had mm-hmm. a few family members that had it turned out with, with vacuum cleaning or something. They just um, hit the Ethernet cable and something went out somewhere. So yeah, been there.
2: I also can't say anything because the number of times I forgot to like switch the switch on the back of the ATX power supply and like, why is it not <laughs> turning on? Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, oh. right.
0: Yeah. Yep. I mean try being, <laughs> try being front level of support for a college campus for residence halls. That's when I was in college oh, I did that. And oh. you know, one of my co-workers was getting frustrated on the phone with this with a student who lived in the dorms and was like, Listen, just bring down your computer to the office and we'll take it fixed for you. Okay, what's the computer? Yeah. And he was trying to explain <laughs> it and he's trying to explain. It, and finally said, Okay, it's the thing, everything plugs into it. It's got the power switch on it. She goes, Okay. Five or ten minutes later, she's down in her office carrying the power strip. Oh my gosh. I oh, looked at the guy wow. and said, You told her everything it plugs into has got power switch. Yeah.
1: <laughs> technically it's correct.
0: Technically, you're technically she's correct. You can't you can't
2: get mad about this.
1: Oh, Nomads just disappoints us.
2: Oh my. I, I feel really bad because I'm going to, you know, university right now, and I'm one of like maybe 30 people at the university that runs Linux on their laptop and desktop. And I lived in the residence hall for a while and their, Mm. their internet system requires some like extra software to be installed, weird certificates. And it's just a mess. So I went in there one day and I'm like, so can we get this connected to Linux? And they looked at me and I've never seen somebody have like a more like, do you have to exist face? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I could see how done they were with me before before I even had, like, even said anything. Like, they they could just see it, and they're like, oh, this is going to suck. Yep. (laughs) To be fair, we did figure it out. It just manually required... It required manually installing certificates, which was just a super fun time. (laughs) (laughs) And it also mildly Um, concerns me that we had to install, like, a certificate on there, because that implies to me they can see everything I'm doing.
1: Yep. Most likely. But...
2: Thankfully, they actually don't require that anymore, and they actually switched over their entire network to uh, EDU Rome, which is a network that runs on, like, every college across, yep. like, everywhere, which is actually really cool, but also a mess, Mess. so, eh.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, EDU Rome is uh, also used, so at least it's a consistent mess, you know, what you can expect, I guess. Uh, kind of a consistent mess.
2: So they uh, use various authentication protocols, depending on where you are.
1: Hmm.
3: Okay, and it's so,
2: all really weird. Like most of them are like really, like corporate level, business level authentication protocols, which like makes sense, but it's also not stuff that most consumers have experience with. So when you tell your average college student, you need to authenticate this with uh, PEAP, and they're like, "What?"
1: Yeah, we just had like a step for step with pictures and screenshots guides for every operating system and every mobile phone operating system for us. So most <laughs> somebody... people eventually figured it out
2: until somebody comes over to you with palm os
1: uh well they they did have a guide for a windows phone so mm.
2: (laughs) nice oh my i i gotta wonder how some people actually still use that stuff like i actually know somebody who still uses a palm phone
1: well if it doesn't break i guess but yeah
2: Um, it's not
1: exactly what you would say modern
2: no and like i suppose i'm we're not people to talk it's like we use linux and nobody else does and like that sucks, but it's true. Yep. Actually, I'm curious, Vortex, are you actually using Linux now or are you still rocking Windows?
0: Uh, it depends on what system I'm on. Um, so primary desktop is Windows 10. My personal laptop is uh, uh, Mac macOS Mojave. Um, I, I use Linux on my web server NAS drive, and I use that as kind of a go-to development environment. And I think my, my web server on Vulture uses FreeBSD, which I don't touch anymore. Um, so you I, I, are literally using all of them. Yeah, it, and it comes down to, I've, I've, I start with FreeBSD on some stuff. I've kind of moved over to Ubuntu on, and um, Debian because of my work with the uh, Proxmox on the, on the server side. Um, you know,
2: I just got to stop you there real quick. So let me get straight. You work for an ISP and you use Ubuntu. I'm pretty sure you just alienated half of our audience.
3: Sorry,
0: <laughs> I'm
2: just <messing> with you.
0: <laughs> it's it's not Ubuntu like oh my god the main installer of Ubuntu. It's it's the server <laughs> install that the image is based on. I I I, I say Ubuntu because it's a Debian and Ubuntu in Proxmox are almost oh. synonymous because of the low level architecture. But um, <laughs> yes, I, I you know everyone hates me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: oh, I, I do have to say that. People that's uh, in, in, the, in the Linux community, there's quite a bit of, of distro fight, so to speak. But I mean, if it works for you, uh, fine. Well, for sure. Simple.
0: Yeah. And that's been my take on everything is it, to me, the operating system, the software, it's all tools. It's yeah. like fighting over Phillips or straight slot screwdrivers. It depends on what the application is. You know, so I'm.
2: I agree with that within reason. Because if you compare it to a tool, I just have one problem with that. With that. Remote- for most tools, you know, like you have a drill. If you want to make it, you know, turn, spin left, you make it spin left. You make it spin right, it spins right. With most operating systems, you know, it, it does exactly that. But then you have Windows, where it randomly decides, "Hey, if you wanted to go left. I think you should go right." And that's my issue.
0: Well, we we decided to update the drill overnight. You can, you have to wait thirty <laughs> minutes before you can use the drill. And by the way, we took away the left functionality of the drill, <laughs> unless you have the pro version windows i, I trust me, I'm not defending Windows in any, <laughs> any respect i I absolutely despise Windows Ten mainly because of what it does to things like the control panel, and this is me now you know being the old the old person in the room of i I like Windows seven because I used it for so long, I know where everything's at. We have I to mean,
1: same yeah.
0: In the robotics competition I, I'm involved in, the drivers, the the, the, st- the software that controls the robots runs on a win- on a Windows machine, um, and we sometimes have to do some quick on uh, you know quick network troubleshooting on the devices to get them on the network to get them to compete in a certain match. And there's been times like Windows Seven, I can fly through Windows Eight, I can I, I'm getting good at it. Windows Ten, because of the way microsoft changes things on per update basis it's like okay where did they move the network configuration options Mm -hmm. now where did they move this now where where do i have to go turn off the firewall in in this version it's it's a pain to have to learn sub versions of windows because they just like to change things
2: you know yeah it, it, may be, it may it may have issues. you know there may be two control panels for everything. It may take ten clicks to get to an audio mixer, but at least we have dark mode now.
1: That's true, I guess um, <laughs> yeah uh, i I've, I've also heard that they're working on apps folders, so that would be nice. on what uh like in your in your uh, file browser that you can have a tab for a new thing, so you don't have to have seven file browser windows open again, So just one. With
2: I actually yeah. bought a program that does that natively in Win or not natively. Bought a program that does that in Windows and makes it so you can tab basically any program called Groupy, which works pretty well. It's actually only five bucks or something. It's not bad, but like I don't know why that's taken them that long to add.
1: Yeah, well, again, um, the 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 the, the thing, Windows 10 was the multiple uh, uh, how you call it not monitors, but like uh, a new screen for you can use as a monitor um which was something that windows had for of linux had for ages already
2: oh you mean the workspaces yeah yeah the workspaces uh, there you go thanks it's so bad <laughs> like it works but it's horrible like you know most linux ones you just press like a hotkey and then press any number on your number row the yep. windows one you have to navigate them like spatially like from left to right and like figure out where they are oh it's just it's just bad <laughs> it's actually hard to use
1: (laughs) i i haven't used them to be honest i haven't i haven't bothered with uh, with that yet i I was already uh, annoyed at windows having uh i mean just pick one control panel don't make two
2: but please i have to extensively (laughs) use both windows and linux uh linux basically for everything i can and then windows basically for audio editing, creation, etc., and video editing, because video hmm. editing in Linux is still a nightmare and everybody knows it. You can get DaVinci Resolve working kind of, but it runs slow and it's not fun to do. And <laughs> I think Linux audio is getting there and I think it's actually better than Windows. It just doesn't have as much available. So like Jack audio is awesome and you can do some really cool things with it. But there's like VST support in Linux is trash. I don't know if you've done any like music creation stuff to know what I'm talking about, but.
1: I'm afraid I haven't. I have used Jack for something completely unrelated to music production, but uh, I haven't done really music production or such yet. So
2: what were you using Jack for?
1: Um, off my, my uh, ship uh, was at a small company and they were trying to uh, we were working on a like a Sonos speaker system, something like that. And uh, we used Jack to get the most of all the audio latency gone from all that.
3: Oh, okay. Every
1: tiny speaker was running a Linux. Mm-hmm. so that's why i've got some experience with jack and so, but yeah that's different from audio from audio creation uh, at all so yeah
2: i mean so the main use of jack is just for the low latency and then the uh idea that you can route audio from anything to anything else just with connections yeah. and yeah. that's that's super cool And like windows doesn't have anything like that
1: yeah yeah that's true
2: i mean you can um, actually so... run jack in windows it's just atrocious
1: <laughs> well you you can run linux and windows now so
2: yeah that's still missing system calls <laughs> actually so <laughs> that brings up a fun one i there was a link in hacker news about about a month ago now maybe mm-hmm. where it was an article about it was actually a link to a github issue uh that had been made about io performance and the linux subsystem for windows yeah and how utterly horrible it was <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I commented in there about some stuff about, like, you know, potential solutions, why it's so bad, and about what they thought was the main issue. And it turns out the main issue is why it's so bad, and why actually Linux IO in ge- or Linux, Windows IO in general is so poor compared to every other OS is because of Windows Defender. Strangely enough, if you turn off Windows Defender, the IO in the Linux systems for Windows gets much faster. Windows huh. Defender, literally anytime you access, touch, work with, go anywhere near any file, does a full scan on that file. Well, Linux sort of just in general by design works with a lot more small files and that adds a lot of overhead.
1: Oh, wow, yeah, that's...
2: Then because Windows Defender is usually smart enough to ignore most of the system files for Windows, it isn't smart enough to ignore the system files for the Linux subsystem for Windows. So now (laughs) even for OS calls, it has to do that. And sometimes multiple times over because of the way it's doing the translation layer. It's bad. Yeah,
3: yeah, So, so...
2: Basically, Windows Defender is super overreactive just to, because of the bad history of uh, Microsoft and viruses. So they're mm-hmm. like, okay, we'll just solve the problem with like the nuclear approach.
1: Yeah, brute force all the way. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting that, then, that would, for, for, for the Linux subsystem, they would just scan every tiny file because Linux operates from the idea that everything is a file. I can mm-hmm. imagine that's adding quite some performance hits in there. And it's uh, not,
2: not as horrible because some of the translation layer gets rid of some of the everything file, actually. So like if you plug uh-huh. in a device and um, it's like if I wanted to program an Arduino, I actually can't do that through the Linux subsystem for Windows because it doesn't give you raw access to the devices, at least huh. to my knowledge. Because if you go, if you plug in a device, it still only registers as a com port in Windows and it doesn't give it give you access to it through like slash dev.
1: Huh. Actually, I, no, I
2: no block devices show up at all when you are using the Linux subsystem for Windows.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, for, for developments, if I'm using a Windows platform, so I generally just use a virtual box for stuff or another version of a virtual machine. So I haven't really used the Linux subsystem.
2: I try to avoid virtual machines just because I don't, they add such an insane overhead in the way they capture mouse and keyboard and stuff tends to cause issues with like my workflow. I don't really like it, especially with multiple monitors. It gets, it gets strange. And yeah, 4K true. only makes that more fun.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that.
2: Especially because, you know, you can usually only dedicate like a tops of 512 megs of VRAM. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: true. Yeah. The, 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 your normal system memory is fine, but your memory, your graphics memory is sort of, well, you've got two graphics cards, just assign a graphics card to your VM. That'll be fun.
2: So I've actually done that. I, I ran <laughs> Windows. I actually used to run Windows in a VM and then pass a graphics card to it. And that worked really well. I could play full games on that, and whatever. but. It had two massive issues and why I don't think it's ready for primetime yet. Um, actually, I had three, but one of them was fixed. The first issue, the one that was fixed, was uh, you needed to have a separate monitor entirely for Windows, and that was kind of annoying. Uh, that was fixed because you'd have to actually run the display out natively. Uh, there's a tool called Looking Glass that runs a driver in Windows and then a driver in Linux that actually copies the frame buffer to, from a memory-to-memory copy, so there's like almost no latency, and it makes it so you can run the VM as a window, even though it's like a window in Linux, even though it's being processed on a separate graphics card, which is really cool. Um, oh, cool. But, the, but the two that I was still having an issue with was with audio and um, input, so mouse and keyboard. Audio, mm-hmm. the way I figured it out, the best fix I could find was to put a second sound card on the system and then use the <laughs> actual physical mixer to mix the two lines,
1: which oh, wow.
2: is such a hacky solution and wasn't ideal. Uh, for input, there really wasn't a good solution, no matter what I tried. So that just that's why I stopped doing it, even though it could fully play games in a VM. Actually, I could run VR in a VM. And that worked actually fairly well, because it kind of awkwardly fixed the input problem. Because if you're playing games in VR, the input methods are usually entirely different. And those input methods didn't suffer from the same issues.
1: Oh, huh, interesting. Yeah, I know that it's, it's possible with most virtualization techniques to just dedicate a graphics card and such to a machine. But I, I can only imagine the issues. So I have never really tried it. Actually
2: the, the most entertaining one I did was I ran Windows as a VM in Linux and then uh have you seen the Steam uh streaming boxes so that you can like I don't know what they're called uh, Steam Link do you know have you seen those mm-hmm. at all yeah. So I was running Windows in a VM in Linux and then broadcasting the screen through Steam Link to another TV and the latency was still good enough that I could play games That's
1: actually pretty nice that the, the latency and the big problem yeah. It's also slightly scary because, yeah, that'll just add more and more layers. Eventually, it'll break down, but, yeah.
2: Oh, actually, to make things even worse, that was through Wi-Fi, too. Like, the, the video streaming was completely through, the- and it still did it.
1: Huh, interesting. Yeah. But for, for video streaming, I'm guessing they'll compress it at least somewhat to, to get anything over a non-ideal bandwidth
2: actually it wasn't bad like the the video still looked totally reasonable oh was only only 1080p if i if i had to do 4k i know it couldn't do it but at 1080p yeah it could totally handle it
1: yeah (laughs) i
2: don't think think a steam link can do 4k anyway and i don't know why you'd want to (laughs) but
1: yeah 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 i'm guessing you'll just end up with doesn't really matter i mean it's like the same difference between a a proper nice uh, a 4k blu-ray or a streamed 4k movie I mean the, the the amount of bandwidth is completely different. So yeah, you don't have all the compression artifacts if you're getting a good source uh, Blu-ray movie compared to a streamed movie that has to push 4K over your mediocre uh, uh, cable in some in some cases. So hmm. yeah. Actually, I'm
2: curious on that. So you mentioned all the FPGA dev stuff. Have you and you've done some stuff with video on FPGA, right? Yeah. Have you ever run into issues with the like the video copyright protection that's built into the signal?
1: No, I have not. Uh, most of the stuff was just. So now you don't have anything uh, like that. Uh, I do know that if you're going to read in HDMI, then you might have some issues. Uh, just HDMI from your computer, for example, is probably fine. But I do know that there is some form of protection, uh, especially on newer Blu ray players for the 4K Blu rays. So if you want to capture that on HDMI, I'm thinking that it's not going to work. Hmm.
2: Because I, I mean, I've looked into that a little bit. I know there was the any tv project on crowd supply which
1: mm-hmm. uh
2: was it had like four hdmi ends like four hdmi outs like it was an absolute beast of a board Whoa. and they were trying to solve that problem and i think they actually did but they sort of put an asterisk of please don't do anything illegal and if you do it's not on
1: us <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's that'll be a fun board by the way as well is yeah. in and out be a, yeah. a fun board to uh, to work with and to design with. But yeah, I think for 4K Blu-ray, there was at least, there was, I'm not sure of the current status on that, there was the issue that, uh, say, you have a 4K Blu-ray, you go to the store, you buy a Blu-ray disc to watch a movie, uh, you need to have a certified TV and a certified Blu-ray player with a internet connection, sometimes even, to make oh sure God. your movie would actually play. And for your computer, I think there was one Blu-ray uh, uh disc for your computer and one blu-ray playing software that could support viewing it on a computer but uh because of the drm there's quite some issues with that that's sure absolutely we,
2: crazy yeah, drm is just sure one of it. those things i don't understand like i i get the idea of like you want to protect your content but somebody if you make it that much of a challenge then it's preventing people from actually enjoying your products so you're going to hurt sales and that's why people pirate like the vast majority of piracy isn't for money it's because your distribution method sucks
1: yeah, that as well. I mean, uh, if you want to watch uh, Game of Thrones, um, there is, you have to have a certain internet. Um, those are the only ones that offer a extra paid subscription for HBO. But if you live in a region that you can't have that ISP, then yeah.
2: That's absolutely crazy. You, you just
1: can't watch it. Uh, the only way would be to wait until it's on DVD. Or a pirate. For a legal way. Yeah, but for a legal way to watch it, Wait for the DVD or Blu-ray and buy that, because there's one ISP that is allowed to have HBO. And if you and, don't live in a region that has that ISP, then yeah. And I'm sure you can
2: tell that I would never pirate anything. I am an entirely legal citizen; would never even dream of it.
1: Yeah, of course. I, think I, it I goes encrypt for everyone here.
2: I, I encrypt my hard drives simply because I think that that is a, a you know logical thing to do to you know protect my freedoms as a citizen and you know. Mm the American flag waving behind me with an eagle flying <laughs> by kind of thing here.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, perfect. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's with, with Spotify, at least for the the music side of piracy, because with Spotify, you have not everything, but 95 or 99% of everything for a nice price. I think that's for the music side of things, at least helps.
2: Yeah, no, I think it does. I think a lot of the streaming services are doing a really good job. Uh, yeah. For me, the only reason I still pay for music and uh, download music at all is because I have slow enough internet and it goes out on a regular enough basis that it makes sense to me to download it. I have a total of like a terabyte of music on the system because it's really <laughs> nice people to, to do things.
1: Um, yeah, true. I mean, uh, streaming the internet connection for that. Uh, some streaming services also allow you to store songs offline, a limited number, like a few thousand. So that is possible. But yeah, if your internet is a bit uh, how you're doing, then that'll be a problem. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I think affordable or reasonably priced streaming services with a good amount of content help a lot for that. Yeah, thank any- you for having me. Is there anything you wanted
2: to plug? Like do you have any um, websites or anything?
1: <laughs> I, I do have a blog, uh, which so uh, I'll plug that for them, which is uh, just another electronicsblog.com.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Logic Podcast, episode 0x003.